Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for inviting me back to the Opera House. I remember the first time I spoke here, um, I thought this is definitely going to be the last time, but it's now, I think, even my fourth time here. So it's an incredibly uh, generous gesture on the part not only of the Opera House, but also of the whole city of Sydney. Um, I can't thank you enough. What I want to talk about today is um, uh, my new book and the themes that underlie it. And I guess it's worth saying that throughout my career, um, I've been in search of guidance. I don't believe that the business of living is very obvious. It's not very obvious to me. On a daily basis, I'm reminded of how little I know and um, how things are extremely complicated and don't necessarily have uh, uh, easy answers. And this has led me to look in a number of different areas for what I could broadly call wisdom. I've looked at the world of philosophy. Uh, I've looked at the world of literature, uh, of art, of sociology. Um, and uh, then a few years ago, I began to be interested in the field of religion. Now, this surprised me as much as anyone else because I didn't happen to believe anything and still don't believe anything. And in our society, we assume naturally that those who uh, don't believe won't really care very much for religion and won't be able to see uh, anything in it. But I suppose my whole argument is that that's perhaps not entirely true. Um, one of the major divisions of the world nowadays is between uh, those who believe and those who don't. Uh, between atheists, or agnostics, and uh, uh, believers. And for about the last, I would say, 10 years or so, uh, it's been relatively clear uh, in the minds of many what being an atheist means. Being an atheist means someone who not only believes that God doesn't exist, but it also means someone who thinks that anyone who believes that God does exist is a simpleton. Um, or an idiot, to put it more politely. Um, so, in other words, a rather virulent kind of atheism stalks the land um, that essentially believes uh, that uh, there is something quite wrong with, with believers. They're not simply making another choice. They made very much the wrong choice and need their errors pointed out to them in intellectual ways. They've made an intellectual error and therefore they need an intellectual corrective. Um, I've got a few quibbles with this um, and my approach is slightly different. Um, I don't believe that the question of God's existence or non-existence is the most interesting one in this topic. In fact, I think it's incredibly boring and sterile because one never really makes any headway. You know, on the one hand, you've got the believers who think the atheists are going to hell. And on the other hand, you've got the atheists who think that the believers are rather stupid. Um, and that kind of divide is, for me, painful and, and, and sad. And I don't really want to dwell on it. So I'm, I'm taking a different road. Um, for me, I am an atheist, um, and so I want to begin really now with something which may surprise you, and if you feel very strongly about it, please make your ways to the exit, and I won't hold uh, any grudges, um, but, you know, let's be honest with each other. Uh, I don't think God exists. Um, now, let's move on, uh, if, if we can. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think that's the end of the matter. Now, the greater question is, where... The greater question is, where are we going to go from here? Now we've settled that question, where are we going to go from here? How are we going to live a good life? How is our society, how are our societies to be managed with that insight in mind? And I suppose I'm writing for someone uh, who's a little bit like me, who thinks something like this. I don't believe in the doctrines of religion, but I do like singing Christmas carols, and I quite like some of the passages of the Old Testament, and I love the music of Bach. 
and there's something about Zen Buddhist temples, um, and uh, there's something about the moral structure that you find in certain religions, etc., etc. You know the sort of person, someone who cannot believe but is attracted to aspects of uh, 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 religion. Now, for too long, the choice has been either you sign up to all the doctrines involving many supernatural incidents, etc., and then you get all those nice bits, or you find you can't sign up uh, to these doctrines, and then you're left in a, in a sort of wasteland where there's a lot that isn't really uh, uh, attended to. I want to suggest a different strategy. I want to suggest it not just for my, myself, but as it were, for our own times. Uh, and that's a strategy of stealing from religions, that atheists should learn to inform themselves about what religions are up to, and then selectively steal the best bits. Um, <laughs> Now, this has been described uh, to me sometimes as a bit of a pick-and-mix approach. Um, and the truth is, that's exactly what it is. And I'm very, very proud of pick-and-mix um, <laughs> when it comes to religion. Um, some people say, you know, I've, I've rifled through the buffet of religions. Well, that's great. Uh, I think that religions are a buffet. They lie before us, and a lot of what you might put on your plate is, to my eyes, not that appetizing. But there are some really lovely bits. So I'm going to go around with my plate around some major religions and pick the nicest bits in my eyes. That is my overt strategy. Um, I don't mean to offend, but I think that if you believe, as I do, that religions are essentially cultural products, that they were made by humans, um, then there seems to be nothing wrong with choosing among them like one would with any work of culture. I mean, imagine, take music. Um, you know, imagine you like the Beatles, and somebody said, ah, right, you like the Beatles, so I hope you're committed to the Beatles and will listen to every single track and never, never deviate and make no time for, you know, Robbie Williams, um, <laughs> because really, you must stick to the Beatles. Um, that would seem bizarre. We naturally rifle through the buffet of cultures, be it in music or in literature. You can go from a bit of Jane Austen to a bit of Shakespeare to a bit of James Joyce, and that's allowed. You can create a playlist, and that's what I want to suggest that contemporary society can do um, uh, in, as regards religion too. So what I want to do tonight is take you through the buffet and show you the bits that I'm picking. Um, you may want to pick out other bits. What I'm trying to show you is a method. Um, and Because uh, I think at the end of the day, the method is more important than the particular choices. But let me, let me take you through, through some of these uh, uh, choices. So one area that I think religions are fascinating in is the area of education. Now, education is something that the secular world prides itself on taking very seriously. Huge amounts of money are devoted to education. And um, now the question is, what is education for? Well, when politicians talk about it, um, the prime explanation is that education will provide us with the skills necessary to take up a place in modern capitalism. Uh, so education will give us technical and business skills to make our societies richer and safer. Um, but there's another claim that you often hear made on behalf of modern education. And you sometimes catch it during the more lyrical moments of politicians' speeches or at the end of graduation ceremonies. And that's the suggestion that education can, in some ways, make you into a better human being, a fuller, richer, nobler person. It can make you into a grown-up citizen. Now, I like those claims. I think they, they do sound rather beautiful. Um, and I want to explore them, because I think in some ways we failed to honor that second claim associated with uh, education. And I think we've partly failed to honor it, honor it because we've forgotten about religion. Let me explain. Um, in the 19th century, in the UK, 
Church attendance started falling off a cliff. In the middle of the 19th century, the numbers really collapsed year by year. And this set off a real panic amongst uh, many people who wondered where on earth society was going to find its sources of consolation, its ethical framework, its guidance, its morality. Where were these things going to be found? They had been the preserve of religion. Where were they going to be found? Now, there was one influential group among whom you might call the chattering classes of Britain who came up with a fascinating answer. Uh, people like John Stuart Mill and Matthew Arnold suggested that there was a ready-made replacement for religion, and that replacement was called, with a capital C, culture. Works of culture, ranging from the essays of Plato, the plays of Shakespeare, uh, the novels of Jane Austen, um, they comprised a corpus of knowledge and wisdom that could do very much all the things that religions have traditionally done. They, too, could be sources of guidance, of morality, of consolation. In other words, culture can replace scripture. That was the dream of a certain kind of reformer in the mid-19th century. Now, I actually think this was a really good idea. Um, I fervently believe that culture can get us through some of the great challenges of our life. I'd add a few more things like cinema and photography and music, but all of these things together are vital tools to a, a, a good life. Um, and I think these reformers were absolutely right. The problem is that that insight has fallen entirely by the wayside in, as regards the modern educational establishment. I mean, imagine if you went to any university in Australia or even anywhere in the world. Say you went to Harvard, apparently the best university, and you said, look, I've come to study at Harvard because I want to find a moral framework. I need ethical guidance. I need to learn how to love, to live, and to die. Uh, the administration people would start looking at you so strangely, they'd be dialing up the ambulance, if not the insane asylum. This is simply not what the modern educational system believes it's in the business of doing. It doesn't believe that it's providing ethical guidance, a moral framework, or consolation. And the reason it doesn't is that it assumes that people, once they've become adults, sort of know how to live. It's fairly obvious business knowing how to live. You know, you get up in the morning and you, you find a life partner and you have children, you find a job that you like and you watch your parents die and your friends get ill and eventually you're diagnosed with a fatal illness and <laughs> then it's time for you to head to hospital and gradually shut the coffin and slide yourself easily into the earth and it's kind of obvious, we don't need help. All of that's kind of pretty much taken care of without any further need. Now, that's their view. So their view is don't drag culture into the business of telling us how to live. A proper academic, a proper university does not soil itself with uh, these, these questions. And that's why the university education system is suspicious of questions of relevance. You know, why do we want to make this thing relevant? There's no need. We're rational beings, fully in command of ourselves, and um, we, can, uh, we can make this journey on our own. Thanks very much. Now, religions start from a completely different point of view. For a start, for religions, we're only just holding it together. All of us are in trouble, real trouble. Um, for religions, all the major religions at various points call us children. And what do children need? They need help. They need guidance. And so religions assume us to be broken creatures who throughout our lives are going to need help. There is nothing obvious about the business of living 
and we will need assistance throughout it, throughout our lives. So guidance is uh, absolutely fundamental. Um, you know, the, the, the Christian concept of original sin has many dark undertones and um, associations, but really what it's trying to get you to uh, uh, take on board is that from the very beginning, there's something a bit wrong with you. Um, and um, that's what religions tend to believe. I think not wrongly, as I'll go on to show. So, um, so, so religions start with this idea of our, our fragility, and they see themselves as in the business of helping us along that journey. I don't necessarily believe in the advice they give us at every stage along that journey. In fact, only at very select moments can I agree with what they say. But, but, I'm fascinated by how they feel that we need this uh, guidance. Take a, think, have a look, um, have a think about the ways in which religions deliver uh, uh, their, uh, uh, their, their knowledge to people. You know, in the secular world, when people want to deliver knowledge, they give a lecture. When uh, religions deliver knowledge, they deliver a sermon. And what's the difference between a sermon and a lecture? Well, a lecture wants to you know, share some facts, and a sermon wants to change and perhaps save your life. In other words, a much more urgent, didactic uh, uh, process is going on in uh, uh, religions. So, as I say, I don't necessarily believe what they're telling us all the time, or indeed for a lot of the time, but I'm fascinated by the urgency that religions bring to the business of living. And I think there's something that the secular world leaves really quite absent. There's a, there's a real gap here. Now, moving on, moving slightly along this buffet, kind of a related point, um, I've been discussing, as it were, the form of education, sorry, the, the, the content of education, but I will now want to discuss the delivery mechanisms of education that religions are working with. Um, I think religions can be seen as supremely successful educational machines. There's never been educational machines as accomplished as they are. So let's look at what they do. Let's look at how come they're so good at getting their ideas across. Well, one of their first insights is that human beings are incredibly forgetful. Our minds are like sieves. Um, the uh, religions have been very influenced in the West by the Greek insight that we suffer from what the ancient Greek philosophers called acrasia. Now, what is acrasia? Acrasia is translated as weakness of will. So weakness of will suggests that there are lots of things that intellectually we know full well, but practically we don't do or abide by because we get swept away by the hubbub of events. Our, our wills are weak. And so for religions, what you need to do is to strengthen that will in order to make the knowledge that you actually believe in effective, in order to make ideas stick. So because you're so forgetful, one of the first things that religions recommend that you do is repeat things. All religions emphasize repetition. Think of prayers. You know, at, at 9 o'clock in the morning, you get down on your knees and you say some stuff. By midday, you'll have forgotten it, so back down on your knees. Uh, <laughs> By evening time, you'd have forgotten it again, so back down on your knees. You know, and um, now of course, in the secular world, we associate repetition with sterility. It's like, oh, I've already seen that film. Oh, I read that book a year ago. That's a sort of modern approach. Um, now, the problem is with that approach is that um, it does mean that a lot less sticks. You know sometimes when you come out of a film, and it's been a really good film, and you come out and you think, wow, I want to transform my life, because, you know, that sense of energy or love or, or beauty that was in that film. I want to flood my life with it and kind of make a new start. Problem is, by the time you're having your sandwich at lunchtime the next day, you've forgotten the film. Um, and, you know, the next month, you wouldn't even remember the title. 
Uh, ditto with books. We forget everything. Our minds are like sieves. And yet the secular world keeps thinking that you can sit somebody in a classroom at the age of 20, pour in some really vital stuff, and it'll still be there across a 40-year career in management consultancy. Um, <laughs> the, the problem is, it, it generally doesn't work like that. Um, so, religions are much more careful. They're careful with time. Now, what all the religions do is manage our calendars. You know, um, our diaries tend to be packed with lots of things. Um, but when you look at what they're packed with, they tend to be packed with the appointments of capitalism, a meeting here, a, a, a business appointment, uh, uh, you know, a, a checking in with a tax inspector. They're things that we need to keep our working lives going or our social lives going. That's what we put in our diaries. Now, religions are interesting because they have diaries. All of them have diaries. But they put slightly different things in those diaries. They put things related to our inner self. They try and give us appointments with psychologically important ideas uh, from a belief that unless they are in our diaries, we'll just forget about them. Um, so they want to lend structure. So every religion has a, a structure of some sort. So take Catholicism, you know, on the 31st of March, you will be thinking about St. Jerome and his qualities of humility and uh, patience, etc. Every day has an idea uh, uh, associated with it. Um, and I think it's rather useful because I think many of the things that we care a lot about do slip through the cracks. Um, take the moon, right? Um, looking at the moon is, I think, a really wonderful, beautiful, calming thing to do. Um, you look at the moon and you think, well, I'm so small, this thing's so far away, the universe is so large, and somehow you're your soul is still, some of the anxieties of the day lessen as you, as you, as you look up at the moon. Um, and often one thinks, oh, I, you know, I should do this a little bit more often. But the problem is that we don't. You know, none of us spend much time looking at the moon. And the reason is we're too busy, other things come along, etc. So it goes by the wayside. But, but if you're a Zen Buddhist, you've got an appointment with the moon. Um, and that appointment comes in the middle of September at the festival of Tsukimi, where you'll be asked out of your house and made to stand on specially made canonical platforms. And um, you'll sing uh, some songs and recite poetry in honor of the moon. And you will remember the fragility of life, the importance of friendship, and the brevity of life on Earth, all the while eating some rice cakes. So it's a charming ritual, a charming ceremony, designed to put a place uh, in the diary for psychologically important ideas. And that's really what a ritual is. You know, Religions are full with, of rituals. What is a ritual? A ritual is a social event that has as its ultimate goal some inner transformation, some psychological transformation. And rituals really throw up the difference between modern society and religious society. Um, modern society is obsessed with spontaneity. Um, we think we'll find our way to the important stuff on our own, in our own time. No one should tell me what to do and when to do it. It should just bubble up. And the problem, however beguiling that is as an idea conceptually, the problem is, you know, we don't really do it. Um, take springtime. Another lovely ritual that you find in Judaism this time uh, is called Birkat Hillehot, where every springtime you take a rabbi, or the rabbi takes you out into the fields, and you look at the new blossom on the trees, and you recite some poetry and some prayers in honor of the beauty of the fields and of the new year. Now, Wordsworth was also doing this. You know, if you read Wordsworth, that's what it's all about, or a lot of it's about welcoming the new year, blossoms, etc. The problem is, and the reason why 
the festival, the ritual of Birkat Hilohot is perhaps has got an edge over Shakespeare in some ways, is that none of us really read Shakespeare, um, uh, not Shakespeare, Wordsworth. The problem is that none of us actually read Wordsworth. Um, but, well, we might have touched on him at university, but basically, you're not really going to go and dig out your, your Wordsworth nowadays. Um, it, it's something that is a theoretical possibility that gets left by the wayside, and religions, much more forceful, um, try and timetable that. Now, the other thing that religions know in the field of education and delivery of education is that um, if you have an important idea, it's not enough simply that it is important and reasonable. You need to get it across in a convincing way, and in order to get it across so that it will stick, you need to be a really good public speaker. I'm letting you down here, but that's the idea. You need to be a really good public speaker. Otherwise, however good the idea is, it's just going to fall limp, which is, again, why the major religions invest a lot in oratory. And you find this at its best, probably, in the American South, in the Pentecostalist tradition. And any of you who've been to a Pentecostalist service on a, on a Sunday down in the American South, well, no, it's an extraordinary event. You know, these preachers are amazing. Um, they'll say some stuff, and when it gets really convincing and, and, and good, people will say, amen, amen, amen. And if there's a really rousing point, then members of the congregation will stand up and say, thank you, Savior, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Christ. And there's a kind of call and response with the audience, and, you know, it's a real frenzy. Now, compare that with a modern university. Everybody's there. <laughs> and, um, you know, because the, 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 prof, the prof thinks that it's enough that, you know, He's got a PhD and his ideas are really logical, so he thinks that's enough. But the problem is it's not, because it's not going to stick. And so my suggestion is that some of the profs be sent over to Alabama <laughs> for a little bit of instruction with these Pentecostalist guys, so that at the end of our university lectures, you'll get people standing up going, you know, thank you, Montaigne, thank you, Shakespeare, thank you, Jane Austen. <laughs> and there'll be, you know, some real energy uh, uh, in the room. But until then, things are going to be quiet in the university. Um, now, there's something else that religions remember when they're trying to teach us something, and that is that we are not merely brains. We are not merely machines of reason. We are embedded creatures. In other words, we exist within bodies that are sensory, that are passionate. We have senses of smell, of sight, of hearing, of touch. And if you want to try and teach someone something, religions allege, you have to involve these senses. It's not enough simply to target reason. And so all religions do this to one extent or another. Take again Zen Buddhism. One of the most charming lessons of Buddhism is delivered along with a drink of a beverage, um, and that is the Zen Buddhist tea ceremony. Now, what is the Zen Buddhist tea ceremony? At one level, it's a, it's a lesson in the brevity of life, the importance of friendship, um, the value of the community, uh, all of these things. But it's not just lectured to you, it's combined with the ritual drinking of some hot tea. And there's a curious um, collaboration, in, if you like, sympathy between the moral of the words that are used and the moral of the tea. So something physical is supporting something psychological or intellectual, if you like. And you find religions doing this all the time. Take in Judaism. Judaism, a religion really interested in forgiveness, in notions of forgiveness. But you don't just hear lectures on forgiveness. If you live in an orthodox community, every Friday, um, the rabbi will lead you to uh, the mikveh, the ritual bath, which is often in a beautiful setting. And you're asked to go back over the week, um, confess to things that you've done, um, and ask for forgiveness, forgiveness both of your friends and also of God. 
Um, and then you plunge into some water from head to toe. You have a really good soak. Now, I think all religions recognize that there's some connection between water and lessons. You find this in, across the religions. And we know this from our, our own lives, our secular lives. You know, sometimes when you want to change your mood or in some ways, you say, I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to take a bath. But the really life-changing capacity of water, the capacity of, an Im of immersion to, to effect a, a change, is something that only religions are picking up on with their full depth. And I mention this because it's a characteristic move of these uh, religions, to employ the body to make a, a, a lesson. Let me go on to a few other things on, on the buffet. Um, another area that I think religions are really interesting in is the world of art. Now, in the secular world, we think we've got art pretty well wrapped up because we invest a lot in museums, in galleries, there's a lot of surplus wealth that goes towards uh, the arts. Um, but I want to suggest um, that in a way, our relationship to the arts is not going as well as it could be, and that some of the reason is that we haven't properly studied how religions use art. It's sometimes said that museums are our new cathedrals, but in some ways, I don't think they're quite doing what cathedrals did for, for various reasons. One of the reasons why art isn't quite living up to its message or the claims we make for it is that we're obsessed in the modern world with that ancient or old 19th century adage which says that art should be for art's sake. In other words, that a successful work of art exists in its own realm, in, in the aesthetic world, um, and, um, and that it shouldn't have an attempt to change society or to have an impact directly on people. It, it exists in, in art world, in that special world called, called the world of art. The other thing, the other piece of ideology that surrounds the display and interpretation of art is a veneration of mystery. Um, it's almost as though the more complex and interesting a work of art, the harder it will be to explain what it's doing or what's going on. And so nice people like you, when you go to a museum, particularly a museum of contemporary art, one of the common feelings one comes away thinking is, what did that mean? Um, and that's often a, a feeling you often get uh, reading museum catalogues, which are often seem as though they're translated from the German, uh, even when <laughs> they're, they're not. So, so there's a kind of air of mystery, and there's an air of, of, of removal from, from daily life. Now, this is not at all what religions believe when it comes to art. When it comes to art, religions are very simple about what art is for. Art is for two things. Firstly, it's to remind you of what is good, how you should live, the good, the good way to live. And secondly, it's to remind you of what's bad, what's unfortunate, what's sad, what's away from fulfillment. So that's the dual mission of art. In other words, art is didactic, and it's a piece of propaganda. Art, all religious art, is propaganda. Now, when people hear the word propaganda, um, it's never too far till somebody thinks of Hitler and somebody else thinks of Stalin. Um, and so in saying this, I'm aware that I'm on a slippery slope. But I want us to try and hang on to the, somewhere in the middle of that slippery slope. We don't necessarily have to tumble down to the bottom. And I think religions show us how. Because if you look at the history of religious art, the, work, the sort of things that propaganda has been made on behalf of have often been some quite nice things. I mean, take something like Rembrandt's Christ Crossing the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful painting, a piece of propaganda on behalf of what? The fascist state or you know, the workers' paradise? No, it's a piece of propaganda on behalf of courage. It's trying to remind you of what courage is like, and it's trying to instill in you 
a sense of how you might be more courageous by looking at the example of some courageous guys who were crossing the Sea of Galilee one day. Um, and now, why do religions think that we need this kind of art? Why are they calling up people like Rembrandt? Um, the reason for uh, religions doing this is that they think that there are all sorts of ideas that we have in our minds that basically lie dormant and ineffective until they are reawakened by a work of art. Art turns cliches into things that we actually believe in and can act by. So we all believe, for example, that it's nice to be nice and that we should be good and we should love our children, we should love the environment and all these things. And we know all of this and it's all wise and it's all true. Problem is, we don't really tend to act on it until a great work of art comes along and I'm thinking, you know, it could be a film by Tarkovsky or Hey Jude by the Beatles or whatever it is. And suddenly you think, ah, oh, that's what love is. Or that's why I should be, you know, caring about the world or loving my children or trying to be more tolerant of my partner or whatever it is. We are reminded in a visceral, active sense of truths which would otherwise have left us cold. And that's why uh, religions believe that you need some artists to hand. And that's why they've had the phone numbers of some of the greatest artists in, in the world at all times. They knew who to call, and they knew the art needed to be good, because if it was going to be bad art, the message wasn't going to get across. Now, just, just think about how different that is to the way the modern world works. You know, in the modern world, there are people of ideas, right? Um, but, and, you know, they write their books, and they do their things. Um, but uh, do they ever call up you know, the great artists, the great filmmakers? No, not really. You know, the, the artists are in one corner, and the sort of thinkers are in another. But the way you have to conceive of religion is it's joined up. The thinkers are in touch with the artists. The thinkers might be telling the artists what to produce. Very, very different to, for, from a, a kind of modern uh, mindset. But I think it may be just very important to do that. There may be something quite essential about animating our beliefs by using uh, uh, the, the, the works of the great artists. Um, I suppose what, what religions uh, are really saying is that the aesthetic realm is not just superficial. Um, that the way things look and feel and sound isn't just something over there that belongs to a kind of house and garden magazine or you know, interior design or some sort of trivial thing. Uh, it's right at the center of importance. And it's important because we, as humans, respond to sensory uh, material. I remember a few years ago, um, I was uh, looking to uh, get married. And um, I, uh, I thought, right, well, how am I going to do this? Where, 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 shall, I, where shall I go as a, as a non-believer? And I thought, right, well, I'm not going to go to a church or anything like that because, um, you know, that would be wrong. So I called up uh, an organization. I, I looked on the website of an organization called the British Humanist Association. And um, I, I clicked on their website, and uh, the moment the screen came up, I thought, ooh, something's a bit wrong here, because it looked like it had been done by a 12-year-old, the website. You know how HTML goes a bit wrong, and it's a bit wonky. Anyway, and then I thought, well, I'll keep going. And then there, were, there was a bit where it said, um, um, find your own celebrant, the guy who's going to help you to, to celebrate. So I clicked on the celebrant, and some pictures came up. And I looked at the pictures of the possible celebrants I was going to um, uh, entrust to this special day. And I thought, oh, dear. Um, <laughs> and I thought, partly I thought, their clothes, they're so badly dressed. Um, and, uh, and then I read their prose that they put about things. And I thought, oh, there's so many spelling mistakes. And uh, it's not very eloquent. Now, this could sound sort of bitchy and superficial, but I don't mean it to. I don't mean it to. What I'm trying to say is that if we're to make a viable world, um, beyond religion. We're going to have to study what religions get up to very carefully, and we're going to have to learn that hats are really important and shoes <laughs> are really important. 
and clothes are, are, are really important, and the way that language is put together is really important. And we can't just say, right, well, you know, there were some errors in the tales of the uh, loaves and fishes, and uh, Genesis doesn't quite stack up, so that's enough. Um, we're going to need to work a, a little bit harder, and religions uh, know this. Um, let me move on a bit. Uh, something else, moving on the buffet, something else that religions are very practiced in and sort of intelligent about, and that is that um, if you want to change the world, you've got to get organized, right? You've got to group together with other people. Um, it's not a coincidence that the major religions are also known as organized religions. In other words, it's not just a chap or two with a good idea, it's a group of people who've coalesced and have shown discipline around a set of, of ideas. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the modern world, when you look at people who are interested in what one could broadly call the soul, I'm using that in a completely non-supernatural sort of, uh, way, the soul, the inner part, you know, the, the kind of the weighty important stuff. The people who are interested in the, modern, in the soul, in the modern world, are basically uh, lone practitioners. You know, they're the poets in their bedrooms, the writers in their bedrooms, the, uh, the, you know, the, the guitar players, the psychotherapists, uh, the painters. You know, they're all off in their little sheds, in their little studios, you know, doing their stuff, saving the world. Um, and in, in other words, the view is, if you care about the soul, you, you're, you're on your own. You're, you're, you're supremely individual, and that's a, a legacy of that romantic worldview that crops up in the 19th century, which says, you know, if you've got an important contribution to make to humanity, speak alone with your own voice. Only the singular lone voice uh, is important. Don't learn to read a spreadsheet. Uh, don't group, group with other people. You know, speak purely from the mountaintop. So that's um, the kind of modern worldview. Now, religions differ a lot. They are organized. They are multinational. Uh, they have rules on how to behave. They are branded. They're the leaders in branding. Um, and, uh, 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 and they show extreme coherence in a, a lot of areas. Now, the only thing that's comparable to religions in the modern world is multinational corporations. If you look at the structure of multinational corporations and religions, they're eerily similar. Branded, multinational, disciplined, etc. Um, lots and lots of, of, of similarities. Except they do, of course, slightly different things. The, the religions are in the soul space. They're doing the kind of soul bit, feeding our soul. And, and the multinationals tend to be in the you know, more physical space. They're you know, shipping us cement or selling us pizzas or shoes or, or whatever it is. So we've got, in the modern world, we've got you know, the, the soul-focused religions, organized, well-organized. You've got the religion, uh, you've got the, the corporations that are well-disciplined and focused, but um, they're, they're selling us shoes. And on the other hand, you've got the, the poets and the psychotherapists in their bedrooms. Um, and, uh, and this seems kind of striking, and I think a real loss um, no wonder, in a way, that religions continue to be so powerful and that the messages of the very good ideas that secular society has come up with often don't get through to us. You know, the revenues of the Catholic Church last year were $97 billion. When people scratch their heads and go, why is it that Catholicism remains a very powerful force in the world when some of their arguments don't make much sense? Well, you know, look at that $97 billion for, for a moment, at least. Um, they're very organized. They're, they're pooling together the intelligence of large numbers of, of people, and they're showing great discipline. In other words, I'm trying to suggest that if, in the secular world, the ideas that we fervently believe in are to have real traction in the world, we may have to think about organization, that organization seems key to getting things across, and that the lone practitioner, however pure he might be, however untainted by commerce and 
fellowship with others um, is ultimately a very, very weak voice in a lonely world. We tend to assume that if you want to change the world, just you know, write a book and then that all will be fine. But religions are not just books. They may have books at their center that are very important, but they're also about schools and they're about music and they're about eating and they're about calendars and uh, they're about funeral services, they're about all of this sort of stuff. And to think you can move on by just you know, chucking a few wisely aimed arguments against them and the whole edifice will collapse, dream on. Of course it won't. Um, right, I want to move on to just a few other things on, on the menu. Let's look at community. One of the things that religions are indisputably rather good at doing is creating communities, turning strangers into friends. And one of the things the secular world clearly has a problem with is community. Um, I think the, the modern world is lonely. We're all hunting for that one very special person. That's how we start off you know, in adolescence, in our early 20s. We're searching for that one very, very special person who can spare us a need to mix with everybody else. So we're all kind of <laughs> selfishly looking for you know, that, that, that special person. But the group, the group is, mm, you know, we, we, we don't really like the group. Um, now, uh, I think it's actually very important to live in, in groups. And I think a lot of our neuroses and anxieties come from the fact that we, we're not living in a sufficiently group way. Now, don't get me wrong. In the modern city, in, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in London, um, there are all sorts of gatherings all the time um, of people, like tonight and everywhere, places where you can hang out with people. There are bars and restaurants. So for someone to come along and go, you know, we're lonely, there's no one around, um, that's clearly wrong. There are lots of people. The problem is we don't talk to them, ever. Um, unless I perform a... a exercise, which could be both be embarrassing and quite fun, but I don't think I will, um, <laughs> of doing that thing that many religions do, which is asking everybody to introduce everybody to each other by turning to the left and the right, but I won't do that <laughs> quite yet. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, you're, you guys are not going to get to know each other. You're just going to file out, and that's it. Now, religions um, uh, regularly take people into a space, and they basically perform a host function. They introduce them to each other. They introduce us to each other. Now, I think below the surface, we're not as grumpy as we look. You know, when we're walking around, we're all a bit grumpy, you know, sort of look a bit strange. And, you know, um, and, uh, uh, and the reason is we're scared. We're scared of rapists, and we're scared of murderers, <laughs> and, and we're just scared of all the bad people we've read about, pedophiles and nasty people. So that's why we've got to be very careful as we, as we wander around. Um, but deep down, under a layer, we're actually quite friendly, most of us friendly. The, the problem is that it normally takes you know, a flood, a fire, or a snowstorm until anyone talks to anyone else, because uh, it's just too sort of embarrassing. Someone did say to me, look, that's just because you're in England. But I, I suspect it's a, little <laughs> bit, it's a little bit everywhere. Anyway, um, so what do we need to bring out our sociability? What we need is a good, is a good host. Now, you know, you know the host from, from a party, right? So, you know, um, again, quite English. W when you go to a typical English party with a bad host, uh, everybody's standing like this, looking quite glum, sheepishly with their drink, and, um, and, and it's all quite stiff and, and, and quite awkward. But if there's a good host, uh, they'll go, look, you meet so-and-so, you meet so-and-so, you talk to so-and-so, and suddenly the party is going. Now, writ large, without any disrespect, religions are hosts in their societies. They introduce people, they bring people in a room, and they say, it is safe to talk to people here. It's a very basic thing. Um, it doesn't require belief in the supernatural. Many people will often say, look, I've kind of lost my faith a while ago, but I do love those services. Um, I do love the after you know, bit when you have the tea and the biscuits and that kind of thing. Um, and they're not wrong. You know, why are they like this? Because there's not much else going on. So some people say, well, what about the football club or you know, the swimming club or um, the pub? Um, and the problem is that not everybody likes swimming or football or, or anything else. Um, that we can't, we don't all belong to these specialized hobby groups. The modern world has hobby groups. 
whereas religions have communities. And the difference between a hobby group and a community is that in a community, a group of people are gathered who have, in a sense, nothing in common with each other. Um, they look weird to each other, you know, they're different races, ages, colors, etc. Um, and maybe they're a bit scary looking. But the whole process, the kind of spiritual journey, is to turn that alien person into a human being, to discover the humanity below the surface. And that seems like an incredibly sort of valuable exercise that religions uh, uh, make us do. Now, I'm really running on, so I'm going to conclude. Um, really, what I want to end by saying is that um, even if you don't believe in anything, as I don't believe in anything, it really seems vital to learn enough about religion that you can draw on those bits of it that still seem to have an awful lot going for them. You know, if you're in the world of community building, look at how religions build community. If you're in the art world, look at how uh, uh, religions do art. If you're an educator, look at how religions educate. Ultimately, ultimately, and I want to end with this point, ultimately religions are far too complex, wise, rich, nuanced to be abandoned simply to those who actually happen to believe in them. Uh, they're for all of us. They're for all of us, especially non-believers. Thank you very much. But I did want to start with one question from Alison uh, Badajoz, who says, to Allah, your latest book refers heavily to Christianity, Judaism, and Buddhism, <coughs> but rarely mentions Hinduism or Islam. Why was that? Well, I knew from the start that this wasn't going to be a work of comparative religion. This wasn't going to be a work where I kept comparing one religion to another. If there is a comparison, it's between the secular world and the world of religions. And for this, you don't necessarily need an infinite array of religions. What matters is to get to know some religions really well, and they double themselves up in many, many areas. So um, uh, I didn't want another Abrahamic religion, having already got uh, Judaism and Christianity, and I was very fascinated by Buddhism, um, which uh, uh, I didn't know that much about and now know a little bit more about. So it was, it was a personal choice, and um, one almost to say one shouldn't read too much into it. We had some wonderful questions from Oliver Damien. Um, who says, do you consider that the cultural memes atheists can borrow from religion will be as potent if they are divorced from the bedrock of a firm belief in a supernatural reality, which arguably is what gives them their power? Look, I think this is an anxiety on the part of, of many. I mean, I, when I was in London, I did a debate with a Catholic priest, and um, he said to me, um, rather waspishly, I thought, he said, look, you think you understand Bach, but you don't. Uh, and he said, you know, you think you've looked at Titian, but your eyes are closed. And, um, you know, and he said, you know, and you think you've read John Donne, but you haven't. And um, I sort of started getting a bit depressed about this. And, um, and then I thought, well, look, um, I don't know what you're getting out of all this stuff. You know, I don't know what the full-strength dose feels like. But as far as I'm concerned, it's not bad. You know, I'm, I'm really revving up there with um, the mass in B minor by Bach. You know, it's doing, the, it's doing something for me. So I think it's always going to be possible for believers to say to non-believers, you don't get it, do you? Um, at, to which, as a non-believer, one can only say, perhaps, but I'm not, I, I don't have access to um, the kind of sensory data you do. So um, all, all I can say is, uh, 
it seems enough. I think we can be getting on with quite a lot and getting quite a lot out of cultural works, even without the supernatural structure for which they were uh, indeed uh, uh, once uh, invented or mm. created. Mm. Can we go back briefly to your question about organisation and um, the, your very funny reference to the psychotherapists and the artists in their bedrooms. Um, how do you think they could get out? How could they get out? Um, that's a big question. Uh, look, take something like psychotherapy, which is really close to my heart. Um, you know, if, in, in London, first of all, if you, um, if you go and see a therapist, people will still say, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Um, how is your madness? Um, and, and, and you want to say, look, it's not that bad. It's not, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, get more out of life and whatever. But the, the dominant assumption, you are a marked person. That you, you're crazy. Um, and, uh, and, and then when you call up the psychotherapist, um, you know, you shuffle along to your GP and you ask for a therapist and you get referred and you dial a number in Hampstead and then somebody picks up with a Hungarian voice and goes, hello? And you think, hello, I'd like to make an appointment. Hello? And, and the whole thing, and you sound... You know, the whole thing is just intimidating and peculiar and very, very odd. And I contrast that with a priesthood. You know. mm. um, contrast that with a Catholic priesthood. Now, after you, one said every last horrid thing about the priesthood and paedophile priests and blah, 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 all of which I'm well on top of, very well aware of, don't forget for a minute, the priesthood is still a rather interesting institution. Really, what it is is a group of people whose task is to minister us through the key stages of life, from birth to death and to offer advice, consolation, reflection, conversation, etc. Um, now, where, what's the equivalent of that? We don't really have it. The equivalent is probably psychotherapy. But the psychotherapists are in their bedrooms. So what do we need to do? Um, look, I mean, I'm sure there are some entrepreneurs in the room. Um, the question is not different from any other uh, uh, a problem requiring what one might call an entrepreneurial solution. It requires that we band together the therapists, that we give them a nice logo, that we um, give them a coherent uh, uh, pattern, etc., and that we learn why religions are effective, and we use that when designing um, something that might work for the secular world. So, taking inspiration and being creative. I think, you know, we're still at the dawn of history. Sometimes it can feel like we're really, really at the end of everything, with the Romans and all the rest of it, so long ago, and we've tried everything. And the basic assumption is, if it's a good idea, it's already been done. And if anyone's suggesting now anything at this very late stage, it must be mad. Um, let's reverse that. We're very much beginning things. We're learning to live, many of us now, for the first time, the first generation, without organized religion. And we're stumbling around, and we haven't necessarily got all the answers, but I very much believe that this is a creative moment. Do we have someone at microphone two? Oh, sorry, I'm a bit short. <laughs> uh, hello, Ellen, I'm Sally. Um, it's a bit related to that, that last question. Um, I'm on the same page with you so far, that's great. I'm just wondering, you know, what's the next step? Where is this organisation going to come from? Are you the next leader or are you merely a prophet? <laughs> somebody coming along? Yeah. And will this, will this new group include the phrase pick and mix in the title? Right. Um, well, uh, one of the funny things about, about uh, publishing a book is that, you know, some people say it's absolutely terrible and it's awful. And then sometimes you get emails going, look, I've read your book and I'd like to sign up. Where do I sign up? And, um, and, and I'd like to give you all my wealth and uh, devote myself to you. So this can happen. It hasn't, the last bit was exaggerated. But, um, but, but it, 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 look, it can happen. 
look, my answer is, I think we are beyond the world of organization at the level of neo-religious organization in the sense of, you know, one structure with one head, uh, you know, directing things, etc. So I believe in organization, but in miniature organization, the organizations of the therapists or the organization of people who are going to bury people or marry people appropriately, etc. There's lots to be done and there's lots to be organized, but I don't think the creation of a new papacy uh, with uh, a secular pope is on the cards or is in any way desirable. We live in a wiki world where truth is multiple, where we're fiercely individualistic, and insofar as we do organize ourselves, it's uh, in, 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 in relatively uh, spontaneous clusters. Um, and I think the answer is, um, look, my book is full of suggestions of things that need doing in the secular world. Everything from building community to, you know, organizing the therapists to organizing, reorganizing travel. There's a whole host of sort of ideas. And uh, my hope is um, that, you know, reading the book, someone might think, oh, that's a good idea. I might, I might have a go doing that. And they would organize themselves. And, you know, so it's not, it's not like it's going to be a central thing. It might just be something that you're inspired by. Or, or someone might say, look, my idea is not in this book at all, but there's something that's kind of analogous that will inspire me. So I'm, I'm aiming to seed inspiration and get the reader working. By all means, organized, but um, yeah, no, no, no new papacy. And we were so looking forward to the shoes and the hats. <laughs> at microphone number four. Thank you, Mr. De Bottom. You spoke about universities and their role. I'm just interested to know where you think they should be uh, really fulfilling a similar purpose in society to what you've spoken about, turning people into grown-up citizens, because universities only are going to educate in Australia about a third of our citizens. What about the other two-thirds? Shall they stay not grown-up, or mm. is there something else for them? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say a third is not bad. So at least if we got the th one third right, that'd be a really good start. We could then work on the next two thirds. So, um, so you know, looking at the first third, religions, uh, in, um, institutions of higher education are failing there, as far as I'm concerned, in, in delivering that uh, uh, that promise. Um, and and, and as I tried to suggest in my talk, they're, they're partly failing because they have a non-instrumental view of learning. They do not believe that there is a particular purpose that can be frankly stated in a few words to studying literature or philosophy or theater or uh, um, uh, the arts or, or whatever, that the importance, you know, one tends to get tautologies. It's important because it's important. Um, and anyone who asks why is either a government official trying to reduce funding or a vulgar, nasty person, an accountant who's trying to, trying to make life meaner, um, rather than just someone who genuinely wants to know. So that's the one third. As for the other two thirds, um, look, well, let's look at how the dominant mood of society is set. It's set through the mass media. And the interesting thing about the mass media is um, that we've abandoned that to the free market. Um, the, the secular world believes in the free market in, in, in all sorts of areas, including the world of ideas. And the underlying reason for that free market is a belief deep down that um, a lot of what you read and hear doesn't really matter. So, you know, if you've spent uh, uh, an hour driving and you've looked at a billboard selling you chocolate and another billboard selling you a holiday in Thailand and a third billboard selling you a four by four, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's not going to sink in. It's not really important. That's the kind of official thing. It doesn't really matter what we see and read. Um, all that matters is, well, we're, we're such grown-ups, so of course we know what we want. We're not, we're not going to get sidetracked by an advert, you know. Uh, now, of course, if you think about that, of course we are going to get sidetracked by an advert. But then that's really tricky for the, for the governments to take on board, because if we're going to get sidetracked by an advert, that means mm, there shouldn't be any advertising, which is uh, a real nuisance if you're relying on 
tax dollars uh, to keep things going. So suddenly you're in a really tricky uh, political uh, area where um, commercial propaganda, if you like, turns out to have quite a big impact. And the question as a society we have to try and work up is, um, in the so-called free market of ideas, what ideas do we want out there? Uh, is it right that the only people who can pay for a billboard are uh, certain corporations with certain intentions on us? Um, and do we want to level that playing field? Um, and I guess I'd just like to draw your attention to the way that religions are very, very concerned with public space. They know that public space affects the inner being. In the secular world, we think public space can be sold off to the highest bidder, and it doesn't really matter. Um, religions think, no, public space influences private space, and you've got to watch it carefully. We'll go to microphone three, and then I, we will turn around uh, and talk to this gentleman here. So microphone three. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Nicholas, and uh, can I sing? Thank you very much to Alain uh, de Botton. I was reading it when I was 16, uh, and it's been a long time coming. I'm glad I got to hear you speak. Um, now, you know, I completely agree with your first premise that, uh, you know, atheism is right and that there isn't a God and that, you know, we should all consider how to live. The problem with trying to find an atheistic institution, in my mind, is that the religions always have an advantage in that they have one central source of authority. You know, once you take your central premise that there isn't a God, how to live can become very interesting. You can have moral relativists who believe that, you know, we can go over and live in carrots and kill people, and then you can have people who believe in Kant's golden rule. And so having a group where you can discuss how to live within different frameworks becomes a lot more complicated because, you know, in religions, you at least have one framework to work with. Yeah. I think... I think that's a really good question and a really good anxiety because it's an anxiety right at the heart of modern society. We live in a world of moral relativism. And what is moral relativism? Moral relativism is the, the fear that any assertion could be shot down from another side. So, um, you know, uh, look, I don't believe in eating babies, but maybe you believe in eating babies, so we should better watch out. Um, you know, uh, I, I believe um, that, that it's fine to uh, uh, you know, hit children, but maybe you, know, you don't. So we've got to be very, very careful about saying anything because we might upset somebody, and um, anything that you say might uh, get you back the retort, who are you to tell me what to do? Now, my secret conviction is um, that uh, there's an awful lot of agreement. There's, in fact, far more agreement than disagreement. And rather than imagining that once religion has disappeared, we can't agree on anything and we're just left in this complete moral vacuum where we don't know what to do or what to believe or who to trust. Actually, if you gather a group of Australians like uh, uh, everyone in this hall tonight, and if you said to them, okay, let, let's take a poll about what people believe, I would suspect that there would be enormous congruence around some central beliefs. I think that people here would tend to believe in love, in kindness, in generosity towards children, in generosity towards strangers, in the environment, um, uh, etc., and equal opportunity and fairness. A lot of assumptions um, can be generalized from and made to be at the heart of secular society. We don't lack things to believe, and we don't lack things that we can agree on. What we lack is things that will make the ideas that we already agree on stick and effective at key moments of our journey through life. Mm. So it's basically so what this uh, gentleman is saying is that if you look beneath the surface of many works of modern culture, 
you will find a religious substructure. Gentleman was talking about Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, uh, now, I agree that if you look beneath many works of modern culture, you do find, you know, if you follow the work of someone like Joseph Campbell, you do see that there are these archetypes, mm. the hero, the, you know, the myth, the mother, the return, the prodigal son, etc. These are our stories. Now, um, sometimes religious people say, aha, this shows that we're right, because it shows that even though you guys think you are secular, in fact, you are still following our stories. Now, as an atheist, I would flip that round, and I would go, look, it doesn't mean to say that anyone is right. It just means that there are some archetypes in the human mind, which religions have drawn on and non-religions have drawn on, and so it goes. I wouldn't privilege the fact that these myths have cropped up perhaps first and foremost within religious texts. This seems to be more an accident of timing than a, a, a feeling that this is divinely revealed. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much. That uh, was a fascinating talk. Um, I've got a double-barreled barrel, uh, question because I believe in getting my money's worth. <laughs> I, was, I was interested to know whether there was a, a, a precedent, if you were blazing a new trail, or whether there are any uh, thinkers or philosophers that you're aware of that have explored this territory before. And I was also curious to know about the reaction from uh, various religions and perhaps some of the other um, classical uh, pitbull atheists such as Richard Dawkins, if they had uh, come out uh, swinging against your, your blasphemous work. <laughs> yeah. um, well, to answer that, there was weirdly a small cheer at my publisher Penguin when Richard Dawkins did come out and very grumpily said, the whole thing's very unnecessary. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, we're all okay as it is. Um, so, and in a way, look, in a way it was interesting because in the worldview of, of some of these um, more militant Oxford atheists, the, the, the idea is that life is a relatively easy business to get through. You know, um, you, you, know you do your scientific research, you're, you're at high table, um, and you know, things are basically okay. And, and you know, there are just lots of, sort of horrible, thick people out there um, who all the time you know, just weeping at, at Mary and, and, and believing in odd things, and they just need to be set right with some solid uh, reason. Um, and I think what, what they tend to underestimate is vulnerability. Um, and, and I think that's what emotionally I have a problem with there. Um, we are clearly all vulnerable creatures. And to try and persuade someone out of their religion uh, without paying attention to the vulnerability and its role in, the, in their religiosity seems, I think, a cynical ploy. Um, so anyway, that, that's, so, so the atheists, yes, the, a certain kind of militant atheist has been out, I received a wonderful email. Someone said, you have betrayed atheism. Um, <laughs> simply uh, paradoxical. Um, and, but as for precedent in history, yes, look, there was one guy called Auguste Comte, the French 19th century sociologist, who in the mid-19th century um, analyzed modern society and decided that we were all going to fall apart and fall prey to mental disorders and anxieties because the only thing that secular society was going to be living for was work and romantic love. And he believed that a society fixated on work and romantic love would be twitchy. And he didn't put it like that, but essentially would have a wide variety of nervous disorders. And he, belie <coughs> he believed that what he had to do was to invent a religion, <coughs> a secular religion that could help people to cope with their anxieties. So he invented this religion called the Religion for Humanity. Um, it was very, very batty indeed, but quite touching. Um, he, it had as it, at its center a maternal figure who was actually Comte's girlfriend. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, 
although, although she, she, they weren't actually sleeping together, um, he, it was very much unrequited love, and he thought that by making her um, uh, this um, uh, head of this new religion, she would be grateful. Um, <laughs> and indeed, I'm not making this up, indeed she was, and they did sleep together, but then she fell prey to terrible nervous disorders of the kind the 19th century produced, and he went crazy, and the whole experiment collapsed. But ne nevertheless, nevertheless, it's a fascinating thing, and if ever you find yourselves in a, in a big library, look up Auguste Comte and his, I mentioned him in my book, because he's, he's onto something rather interesting, and he holds a place, you know, lots of sociologists are aware of him, and he, he, he never quite goes entirely out of fashion, because he's touching a raw nerve that I think we know has not yet been appeased or, 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 or kind of dealt with in, in the modern world. Mm. Number two. Um, you may be familiar with the fact that there is a um, small schoolyard tiff going on in our capital city of Canberra today. And I, I wonder that apart from perhaps from shinier shoes, what you feel our political leaders may be able to draw from religion to restore public faith. Goodness. Uh, <laughs> um, well, look, let, let me give you a non-religious answer, which... Um, um, is mine. I think the fact you're having this squabble um, is not a sign that Australia is, has reached a new low. It's a sign of real privilege. It's a sign that you guys have it good because uh, most countries can't afford this sort of behaviour. Um, <laughs> and, So, so even though it's a little bit tedious and a little bit peculiar, enjoy. It's not going to last long. They're going to sort it out um, and have fun with it. Yeah. I think that's probably the most interesting response to this whole thing that any of us are going to hear. <laughs> Number three. Um, uh, it's actually, I guess, a follow-up on that question. Um, if attendance at church collapsed in the 19th century, in the late 20th century, the similar collapses in uh, belonging to a political organisation. Um, what do you think? Do you think politics played the role of religion in the meantime between the 19th century and now and is now failing to do that for a secular world? And do you think that the last bastion of that politics as religion is in the American presidential kind of system? Mm. Well, look, I think um, that one of the great innovations and wisdoms of Christianity was the separation of church and state, at least for a time and in its original form, render unto Caesar, etc. The idea that there is earthly power and spiritual power. And even in a secular context, um, that distinction continues. Um, and I think that most people in Australia, in the UK, in, in many modern societies, take it really badly when we feel that power, that political power, is edging into um, the world of religion, in other words, the world of ethics, the world of the soul, etc. Um, when uh, David Cameron responded to the London riots last summer, um, he, he started making uh, comments in praise of personal morality and discipline, etc. And the world went nuts. They just, no one allowed the politician to say that sort of thing. We don't want our politicians to do that. That's a very ingrained thing. So, um, by all means, uh, uh, organize and use a public voice for issues of morality and ethics, etc. But I think the ability to join up uh, political power with um, moral authority, at this point, I probably will invoke uh, Hitler and Stalin, um, which I was resisting doing. I do think that at that point, 
uh, it is, a, it is a, the slope gets really steeper. Um, so I am not for giving a, a moral authority to, to, to Julia or Kevin. That said, I did give, uh, two nights ago, I gave my book to Julia. We were staying in the same hotel, uh, the Park Hyatt in Melbourne. And uh, I, uh, I, I, I went to give her my book. So um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> And we thought that she was staying up late at night making phone calls. <laughs> I just wanted to ask, I, I think that the way that you explain how secular, like secular society can draw from um, the, the traditionalism and the repetitiveness of religion is, um, is a really good thing. I, I love how you explain that. But I also want to ask, do you think that there's a detriment or um, a stagnation that comes from traditionalism um, in an emergent society such as ours where our understanding's always changing and um, you know we're learning new things all the time about our world and our reality and that's always shifting. Do you think that that traditionalism actually stagnates? Um, that, that update or that shift in thinking or um, like a good example of that would have been Galileo and his um, discovery of our place in the solar system and how that was rejected by traditionalist yeah. structures. Yeah. Well, um, but I, then years I, later. I, I think it's really good that you mentioned Galileo because that reminds us that insofar as the modern world is addicted to novelty, what's often driving that is science. And I absolutely believe that's right, that science needs to march forward. And you know, if we were to keep repeating the experiments of you know, Pythagoras, we'd be lost. So uh, I, I don't uh, believe in repetition in the scientific or technological area, but there is a real distinction between that area and what you could more broadly call the humanistic area. Um, this crops up in, you know, not to knock the universities, but let's have one more knock. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the way in which the universities are arranged is you get scientists in universities who are trying to advance knowledge and they're trying to push ahead and do new things all the time. And they have fantastic discoveries, they're inventing retinas and growing toenails, etc., and doing <laughs> wonderful things. Um, and then there are the guys in the humanities departments, and they think, well, we better pretend to be like scientists. Um, so we're going to invent a new discovery, and um, we're going we're to a, a, a new interpretation of uh, Wordsworth, and a, a new interpretation of the uh, letter in Keats, or uh, uh, you know, the way that uh, Proust used the alphabet, or the way that Joyce used the full stop. You know, a, a, a new uh, vital <laughs> discovery in, in the world of the humanities. You know, this, is, this is the way that the, the modern university works. And I think most people who've approached, looked at that close up, think, well, that's actually nonsense, because in this area, unlike in science, repetition is possible because our psyches, as we all know, don't show dramatic evolution minute by minute. Um, that the, the truths that we need to feed our souls are relatively stable ones. We keep coming back to some of the same themes. Um, and if you look, indeed, at the history of literature, they circle. Things are already circling. The great artists are circling. We're all circling, and that's okay. So I would make that distinction. Is, right. is Facebook part of the problem or is it part of the potential solution? Well, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's in itself part of the solution because it's a typical modern instrument in grouping people together by what they like, by their personality. Um, and as I tried to point out, what's interesting about the religious, religion as a community is that it's literally a group of strangers who might not like each other very much. Um, in all religions, there's an idea of hospitality to the stranger. Literally, someone you think, ooh, I'm not, I don't want to sit with that person. They look horrid. Um, but nevertheless, 
you're supposed to sit down with them. And even though they're a bit smelly, maybe, or they speak a foreign language, or they just look a bit odd, the point is that you undergo a journey to see the humanity in that person. And I don't think Facebook's there. <laughs> I'm very glad we did get to the Facebook question, but to conclude, one of the wonderful questions that came in um, via email was, where do you draw the line? What are the aspects of religion that we should steer clear of? Um, well, look, I think, you know, there are some obvious things, cruel abuses and, and violence and, and all the things that, you know, that we know about and that, you know, the Inquisition and the Crusades, blah, blah, blah. But I think more interestingly, um, I, as an atheist, there are moments when I have to draw the line with, with friends who, who believe or who are spiritual in some way. And often it goes like this. People will say things like, you know, standing outside, beautiful night, looking at the stars. And I say, gosh, it's amazing. You know, one feels so small under this giant cosmos. And they'll go, yeah, you know, absolutely, we do. And then they'll say, it just it makes you think that there's something there. <laughs> and, and at that point, I go, no, not really, not really. Um, and I think, I think that's the moment of difference. So but that, by that time, once, you know, there's a lot of friendship to be you had up to that moon. point. There's a, yeah. <laughs> so we can enjoy the moon together. Anyway, thank you. <laughs>